This is the moment Britain's most prolific paedophile, David Wilson, was arrested at his Norfolk home. He was charged with 96 counts of child sexual abuse. Okay, David, listen in. Okay, as of this moment, okay, you are under arrest for the following offences. I need you to listen to the offences, okay? I'm going to go through them. Right. Causing or inciting a child under 13 years of age to engage in sexual activity. Causing or inciting a child to engage in sexual activity. Sexual communication with a child. Blackmail. Making and distribution of indecent images of children. And the possession of indecent images of children. Wilson is a new kind of offender. His MO is one the Internet Watch Foundation is seeing more and more of. He's an internet predator who tricked, bullied and coerced children into performing sexual acts on camera. Acts which are then captured and recorded. He was finding young boys aged as so between 12 and 15 mainly and enticing them into conversations, communications with him, purporting to be this, this young girl. So individuals collect rare images and obscure images. And of course, when they get to the end of the road with that, they have to make their own. So they have to find children and groom children. Pixels from a crime scene. Due to the themes covered, this podcast is suitable only for adult audiences and not suitable for children. There is information at the end of this podcast about where you can go to get help. I'm Angela Young, and this is Episode 7 of Pixels from a Crime Scene, a podcast series looking at the battle to get child sexual abuse material removed from the internet. It's been commissioned by the Internet Watch Foundation to tell the story of its work and the work of its partners. This is an episode of two halves. The first half investigates a new and dangerous type of offender like David Wilson, who targets and then abuses children through devices in the safety of their own homes. The other half is the story of the technology created by the Internet Watch Foundation, which will help prevent predators from sharing this material online and speed up its removal from the Internet all over the world. Images and videos created by these offenders, these appalling crimes, are circulating on the Internet. And it's the IWF's job to go out there and get those removed so the children in those videos and images are not re-victimised all the time. I don't think at the time I really appreciated the direction of travel and and that it would actually end up into a product. It was really just kind of a personal quest to find a solution to something that had been bugging me. Uh, And the fact that it's now been developed into a tool that um, has real-world practical benefits is, you know, is amazing. That's Susie Hargreaves and Chris Hughes from the IWF, and we'll hear more from both of them later in the podcast. David Wilson is a 36-year-old roofer from King's Lynn. 
He was found guilty in February 2021 on 96 counts of child sexual abuse after posing as teenage girls online to get young boys to send him indecent images of themselves and of other children. He's thought to have targeted around 500 young boys aged from 4 to 14, creating fake accounts of young girls and duping his victims into sending him indecent images of themselves and their siblings via Facebook. When they resisted, he blackmailed them by threatening to share the pictures with their friends, and in at least two cases he did just that. The court heard some of the children who were groomed to abuse others had been arrested and one was now in a children's home. Wilson distributed images to some of his victims' friends, despite them begging him to stop, and some children spoke of wanting to end their lives as a result. One child was groomed while struggling with the effect of his father dying from cancer. Another pleaded for Wilson to stop as his grandfather was about to die, but this had no effect on the abuse. The judge said Wilson carried out a lengthy and premeditated campaign of sadistic and manipulative abuse of young boys using social media and any decent human being would be astonished at the level of depravity involved. He decided Wilson was such a risk to society that he was called back after sentencing to 25 years and that term was increased by three years. The case came to light after Facebook identified 20 accounts of boys ranging from 12 to 15 years old who'd sent images of themselves to an account seemingly belonging to a 13-year-old girl. They reported this to NECMEC, the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children in the US, which is their statutory duty. NECMEC forwarded the information to the National Crime Agency. They arrested him three times over three years while compiling the evidence from the US. Tony Cook is head of SEOP operations at the National Crime Agency. It appeared that he was using um, a false, or, or a number actually, of false identities purporting to be a very attractive 13-year-old girl. And he was, he was um, finding uh, young boys aged as so between 12 and 15 mainly uh, and enticing them into conversations, communications with him, purporting to be this this young girl. Of course, this was David Wilson behind this persona. Um, and what he was doing was, he was um, he was getting them to send um, pictures of themselves and of their siblings uh, and friends sometimes as well. Um, and Wilson um, sent them pictures of um, a fake. A thirteen-year-old girl. So they were. They thought they were swapping and exchanging photographs with a thirteen-year-old girl, and they were duped into sending indecent images of themselves. So he would say, uh, "Send me a picture of your top half, your bottom half," and and that was just the start of the grooming process. And of course, he then got them to send um, even more graphic imagery of themselves, and it got worse and worse. And of course, then. Uh, he managed to get himself into a position of control, which is what he ultimately aimed to achieve, and um, started to threaten them and uh, say that he'd um, done a lot of research into their own accounts, the Facebook accounts, and all their own personal details, and that if they didn't send more graphic imagery uh, or do um, what he was asking them to do, which was um, often physically or sexually abuse themselves or their siblings, um, he would expose them, and that that's what started the investigation. We so what we had to do was try and attribute Wilson to some fake 
identities, which is not an easy process, actually. The breakthrough came when police discovered that an unregistered mobile phone linked to the fake accounts was being topped up in a shop in the King's Lynn area of Norfolk. They liaised with the local police and showed them CCTV to see if they could identify who the male was. In court, Wilson's victims and their mothers read out impact statements detailing wrecked lives, ruined relationships, self-harm and suicidal thoughts. One boy, a footballer Wilson coached from the age of nine, read a statement directly to his abuser who sat on a video link in a room at Norwich Jail. His statement is read by an actor. Do you remember me? I was a little boy that used to play striker. I was nine. I was top scorer. I was the kid you took advantage of, that you abused, blackmailed, made feel suicidal. The kid whose childhood you stole. Childhood's meant to be about having fun, but since then there's a part of me that's dark, depressed and angry. I was there to enjoy myself without any cares. You stole that from me. I had problems at school. I used to be confident talking to new people, but my social skills deteriorated. Before, I blamed myself. But now I look back on myself like a little brother. You made me suffer. I want you to know that I was one of the victims that put you in prison. Saying it on behalf of the little boy you abused, now I can see what you really are. From now on, the world will know you, David Wilson, were a pathetic paedophile. Charities which support victims are now having to counsel children who are forced to abuse siblings and friends. Not only do they feel guilty for having sent photos in the first place, but they also have to deal with the knowledge that they've involved someone else. Rhiannon Faye MacDonald from the Mary Collins Foundation is herself a survivor of abuse and now works with other young victims. She says that no matter what they were forced to do, it is never their fault. Even as an, as an older child, I don't think that that understanding is always there um, about what coercion is and, and what it looks like in practice as well. Um, and being able to recognise that that's what's happened. I think that's tricky even for, you know, older teenagers to do. Um, so I think regardless of age, really, um, the recognition isn't always there. And, and that's awful because that's what feeds so much into the recovery from these these crimes is being able to place that blame in the right place um, and put the blame on the perpetrator rather than on yourself. Children and their families can recover from this type of crime, but it does require um, intensive therapy from experts who are um, very familiar with this particular type of trauma. In these situations where um, siblings are manipulated and coerced and blackmailed into abusing a sibling or another young person, maybe a friend, the, the dynamics there of responsibility are very confused and complex. The blame ultimately rests with the perpetrator, but the, the child that has been coerced into abusing another child is going to feel that blame even more strongly than 
if it was essentially if it was only they that were abused um because they because it's gone one step further and they've they've then done something to somebody else they're going to feel a lot of responsibility for that that child is likely to think that it's their fault because they don't recognise that it's the perpetrator's fault. While the Mary Collins Foundation is one of several charities dealing directly with the victims of child sexual abuse, there are very few dealing with offenders. One is the Lucy Faithful Foundation, which runs the Stop It Now hotline. Michael Sheath is a manager at Lucy Faithful. He says there are two main driving forces behind such awful grooming and coercing of children online. I think we're pretty confident that we understand now that over time, the impact of any pornography diminishes. So it's a kind of addiction of diminishing returns. And that if individuals are to maintain their kind of arousal and their level of interest, then they they have to find something more extreme and and more outrageous and more appalling. Um, So that's driving people on at one level. And then the other issue is a peculiar kind of cultural one. And it's it's almost the um, the reverse of virtue, which is to say that the, the worse you are, the more badly you behave, the more other people in the same network might admire or ape or copy you. So images of children become a currency in a way. And although in normal society you would be criticised and blamed and uh, held in very low esteem if you were to be found in possession of child sexual abuse imagery, in some of the networks, the more you have, the higher you're regarded. So individuals collect rare images and obscure images. And of course, when they get to the end of the road with that, they have to make their own. So they have to find children and groom children that they can then coerce to make imagery to to order, in a sense. And that, that imagery has a unique quality because only you have it. And a lot, of, a lot of other people want it. So it becomes a, a currency, a Bitcoin in a way that it gets traded uh, just as other currencies get traded uh, online. And so those two, those two issues, the, the constant search for, for obscure and extreme and outrageous imagery. And, that, and then the second part is that imagery having a currency. So there's a kind of self-reward. The person gets rewarding himself um, for for finding that stuff and he's enjoying it himself. But he's also getting esteem and approval uh, from other individuals who he won't even know. I mean, these these individuals won't meet in the main. They're conspiring with each other without knowing each other's real identity. But they will feel the sense of kudos uh, for having acquired that material and being in a position of power to be able to coerce children into doing things that they absolutely know children don't want to do. For the analysts at the IWF responding to reports of child sexual abuse material, this means having to look at ever more appalling content. One of them, who we're calling Isabel, says they're well prepared and well supported to deal with this. I think we're human, really, at the end of the day, and... In this job, you do think you've seen everything, but then some image comes up and you are just shocked again at what levels of abuse are out there. So absolutely, for me, the, the sibling self-gen was, um, was something we saw much more of. Um, and it did absolutely shock me the first time I saw it. Um, to have 
siblings abuse each other or friends abuse each other it's just another another level and we have to remember that it's not the children themselves doing it most of the time they've been groomed or blackmailed or coerced um into performing this um online and yeah i think it's it's really shocking i think um it would worry me to be honest if the analysts weren't sometimes kind of shocked at what we what we see however the way that we're trained and the way that we have all the welfare provisions in place means that we see something, we're shocked, we can talk about it, we discuss it, and then we categorize it and we're able to move on from that. Because if we weren't able to move on and we weren't able to keep uh, classifying and hashing and grading these images, then we couldn't do our job. Wilson tricked and blackmailed children into sending more and more explicit material. Every day, the IWF sees images and videos of children who've been targeted and exploited in the same way, which have since made their way onto the open web. This is a recognised tactic now being deployed by predators from all over the world. In fact, almost three quarters of all the reports the IWF deals with include sexual abuse material created in this way. Wilson, however, is just one of the criminals looking to access and exploit children online. According to the National Crime Agency, Abdul Hasib Elahi, a 26-year-old from Birmingham, admitted 158 offences. He blackmailed victims all over the world to horrifically abuse themselves, siblings and other children, sold the footage as box sets to other offenders and provided masterclasses to help paedophiles avoid detection. Some of his victims were as young as eight months old. On December the 9th, 2021... He was sentenced to 32 years in prison. An IWF analyst told me that in some dark corners of the internet, they find images of Allahi's victims being requested, and there are also some sites that appear dedicated to hosting images and videos of his victims. The analyst also confirmed that they have instances of self-generated sibling abuse, including children of both genders, that are Allahi victims. Those victims come from all over the world, and the ongoing battle to take down the videos and images of his victims must also be an international effort. Coordinating efforts between different countries isn't always easy, but the IWF is pioneering cutting-edge new technologies which will help save time and remove more criminal content, technology like IntelliGrade. While the UK categorises abuse as A, B or C, depending on the severity of the abuse, the categories are not the same in other countries. This causes frustration and delay for the analysts and law enforcements in other countries as they are hamstrung by the sheer variety of classification. Chris Hughes is the IWF's hotline director. So the issue was that when it came to the sharing of data with our partners around the globe, each country or different countries worked to different classification systems. So it meant that when you were sharing data, it was almost like we were talking different languages. So the idea was to make sure that when we exchange data with our partners, there was an easy way to translate the classifications used in the UK, for example, um, and share those with our partners in the US or um, New Zealand and various other locations. How did the classifications differ? They differ in that some countries um, consider age, uh, as part of the severity matrix. Um, other countries, like in the UK, it doesn't matter whether the victim is a month old or 17 years of age. The classification doesn't change 
depending on age. So we have to look at how we can include age for those countries that age is a consideration. Um, but additionally, also gender sometimes um, plays a, a part in how an image is classified. So it's really just trying to draw those disparate elements together so that the information, when it is exchanged, correlates to the relevant uh, classification system used in each country. So how does IntelliGrade work? So IntelliGrade works on uh, the analysts taking more time um, in tagging up to 21 different aspects of an image. So these include a granular um, section on age, which literally can be 0 to 2, 3 to 6, in various categories all the way up to the age of 17. Um, but additionally, we record gender. And importantly for the classification system, we record the sexual activity that is observed in the imagery, because what's taking place in the imagery is one of the key components as to what classification system and what level of severity each individual country might determine an image to be. How did you come up with the solution? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, it was almost by accident. Um, I was sitting at home one Sunday afternoon having a beer and I was thinking about how we exchange data with our members, particularly with our US members, and that we didn't have this synergy. Um, and it, then I just thought, well, what's, what's the thing that we all have in common? And that was that we are all seeing the same images or we're all seeing the images. Um, so the answer must lie in the image. And that was when I started to think, OK, well, what are the components of an image? We are looking at the age of the victim. We are looking at the uh, sexual activity that's taking place in, in those images. And then I just started to think about the different um, classification systems and the legislation and realised that actually we could use the attributes of an image to work out a system that would give us you know, best endeavours uh, a, a more manageable grading uh, and uh, synergy between the classifications. Did you know at the time the significance of what you just thought? No, I don't think I really did. And it was something that developed over time. Um, and the more that we started to explore the idea and we started to put the product together, it was only, I guess, really then um, that we realised the significance of it. It is no surprise that Chris won the Unsung Hero category at the Third Sector Awards in 2020. Professor Hani Farid is Dean and Head of School for the UC Berkeley School of Information, who specialises in the analysis of digital images and invented photo DNA. I asked him what the global problem was which IntelliGrade sets out to solve. Let me rewind to answer that question. Let me rewind to the early days of photo DNA. When we developed photo DNA, there were, there's really two components to it. There was the underlying technology, the hash, but in some ways there was the more important part, which was the database. Um, was the, the sort of the, the intelligence, if you will. <laughs> and back then, this is now 2008, we sort of thought, well, look, this is a global problem. Um, the rules and the laws of what is allowed and not allowed in the US are different than in the UK and are different in other parts of the world. But there was no mechanism to help um, reason across borders. And so what we wanted back in 2008 was to be able to say, first of all, who added this um, image? Why was it added? Um, so what does it contain? Um, what regions would this be considered illegal? So for example, in the UK, um, even cartoon images of child sexual abuse are illegal, but here in the US, they are not. And what you don't want is a database with no context, 
right? You don't want a database that says, here's a hash and just get rid of it. You want context. This was added by the IWF. This was added by the Canadian Center for Child Protection, the National Center for Missing and Supported Children. This contains a, uh, a, a child under the age of 12. This contains explicit sexual material. This contains something that is suggestive that maybe is more on the border of what is legal and what is not legal. And what IntelliGrade does is it adds essentially that metadata onto a database to give, to give more granularity, more transparency, um, and allow the hashes to be distributed in a way that are more likely to be used because you're providing more information other than here's a cryptic set of letters and numbers please eliminate the distribution of this. And I think that kind of intelligence also goes a long way to mitigating some of the concerns that we hear from the privacy groups of saying, well, what is this hash? Who contributed it? Why is it in there? What is it? And I think this, um, uh, that this richness of the database can be very effective, both in terms of enforcement, but also in terms of mitigating criticism. What I, what I see as the power of this, of IntelliGrade is that it, it is going to make it easier and more likely that more and more organizations will adopt this, right? So if, for example, you're only as good as your weakest link here, right? So if 10% of, of, of online services use things like photo DNA and hashes, well, then the bad people are simply going to move to what the 90% that are not. And so you have to keep opening this. And one way to do that is to make it easier and more accessible and more palatable for small, medium, and large organizations to deploy this. And the more information that you provide, the easier it is for companies to deploy. Hanny is full of praise for IntelliGrade, but points out it was the not-for-profit IWF which came up with this solution, rather than a tech giant. I have been frustrated with the lack of innovation in this space for over a decade. When you think of the technology sector, probably the thing that you think about most is speed, right? Things move incredibly fast. Think about just the last 20 years and how we went from essentially almost a non-existent internet to the internet and mobile devices and computers essentially taking over our lives in two decades. There is no precedent to this in history. And yet when it comes to things like protecting children online, we seem to be lethargic in developing technology. So I'm um, encouraged to see this effort because one of the things that is incredibly important to understand about this problem is that it does not know any borders. This is not a UK problem. It is not a US problem. It is not a Canada problem or an Australia problem. It is a global problem. And we have to think about the solutions globally. Um, and that means partnerships um, across um, borders, across oceans, across industries. Um, and this is a very nice example of that, of really trying to bring together as many groups and, and, and organizations as possible to create these very centralized and then just information and then distribute that information to everybody. It's a good thing because it continues the effort to disrupt the global distribution of child sexual abuse material. Um, it reduces the, the, the market for it. So, you know, some people will say, well, it doesn't go after the abuse itself. And I find that a pretty idiotic statement because the fact is that if you create a market for something, you create the incentive. If you remove the market, the incentive is reduced. It's not eliminated, but it's reduced. So I think anything that disrupts uh, the global market, I think anything that 
increases the risk for people who are uh, offending and distributing the material is incredibly important. And this is an example that is going to do that. I've come to meet the chief executive of the Internet Watch Foundation, Susie Hargreaves, outside the IWF's offices just outside Cambridge. It's two years since we first met to discuss the podcast, which would lift the lid on the appalling scale of online child sexual abuse. It's been an education for me and continues to be. My hope is that by making this podcast, I'm educating other people, particularly those who are responsible for children. One thing I learned was that there's been a huge increase in the number of images being found of the abuse of children which has been created by adults who are not physically present with their victims. They access their victims over the internet and capture the abuse via a webcam. Susie says it's her job to ensure they are taken down as soon as possible. Images and videos created by these offenders, these appalling crimes, are circulating on the internet. And it's the IWF's job to go out there and get those removed so that the children in those videos and images are not re-victimised all the time. One of the things we saw in those crimes was the issue of involving other people. Last time we spoke, you talked about the young people being persuaded to do things without an offender in the room. This is like a step beyond. Yeah, these offenders are really unpleasant, nasty people. They go after the most vulnerable in society. They groom, coerce and trick these children into sharing these images. And the IWF exists to go after those images and get them removed from the internet so that those children can have some hope and stop being re-victimised every time someone looks at those videos. When there is another child involved, possibly a sibling you don't always know, what on earth would the effect be on the family dynamic? Well, we just don't know what it is, but it's got to be really catastrophic, hasn't it? I mean, when you see children who are also abusing siblings on demand, you can't even begin to wonder what effect that's going to have in the long term. How can the IWF protect victims from being re-victimised? OK, so to protect children from being re-victimised, what we do is we go out and remove those images for them. So most of the images and videos we see, we've seen hundreds and thousands of times before. And that's why it's really important for people to know that we will go out and find those repeat images and have them removed. So that's one thing we do. And we also work with our partners in the Safer Internet Centre to ensure that we have a good education programme and that children and parents are taught about how to keep themselves safe online. Because obviously, the best way of avoiding this is for it not to happen in the first place. What do you think is the IWF's role in creating technology for good? Well, sadly, perpetrators are always trying to use technology to find new ways to find children to abuse them. Now, one of the things we can do is try and stay one step ahead. So we are constantly looking at developing new technology, looking at ways in which when new platforms come on that we can find ways to uh, fight the distribution of these images. We work with the internet companies, we access their best engineers, and we also have a really fantastic technical team ourselves. So we're always looking at being one step ahead of the perpetrators. When we first started on this podcast journey, you told me that you had a story to tell. 
Do you think we have managed to tell at least part of that story? I think we have managed to tell part of the story, but sadly it's a story at the moment that doesn't have an end, in that we see increasing volumes, we see new ways of sharing this material. But counter to that, we're getting better and better at finding that content, so we're removing more and more. And I think the story we now need to tell is to make sure that everybody else steps up and that society realises that this is a huge problem. We can't hide this away. We need to ensure that children are kept safe online. And the IWF will be there every single day going out there, finding those images and getting them taken down until there is no more of this content on the internet. If you've been affected by anything you've heard, there are places you can go for help. If you've been a victim, please contact the Mary Collins Foundation. If you're worried about your own or someone else's online habits, visit the Lucy Faithful Foundation Stop It Now page. If you find child sexual abuse material online, you can report it anonymously on the IWF's website. And you can support their work financially too by visiting iwf.org.uk forward slash fundraising. I'm Angela Young, and this is a Cambridge podcast production for the IWF. The music was composed by Jay Richardson, sound design was by Ben Carver, and the actor was Max Taylor. Thank you for listening. <laughs>